The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. All the tents and sleeping bags and mattresses and everything we need for a couple of nights, and we go hiking. And so we go probably about five kilometres on the first day and camp somewhere, and then 20 kilometres the next day and then camp somewhere else. This is kind of around the Mount Barney area. And then another seven kilometres back to base at the end of that. And it was long, it was grueling, it was the kind of thing that you'd be sore for days afterwards. Um, it was always very, very rewarding. But the crucial part of the entire trek was our guide. This, this guy who was, uh, it was his job to take students and, and schools through this kind of area. And he would provide us with a map, he would provide us um, with some guidance, and he'd help us get through this wilderness. And if it wasn't for him giving us that map, giving us that guidance and taking us through we would have become hopelessly lost. And the reason why I share that is because sometimes when we open our Bibles, it can feel like we are stepping into a bit of a wilderness. It can be an unfamiliar world. It can be very easy to become confused and maybe even lost whenever you open up the Old Testament as you try and find your way through it. Maybe you've uh, attempted to set yourself a New Year's resolution of reading the Bible better, or maybe even reading the Bible through in one year. And it always starts out really well, doesn't it? You get through Genesis and creation and all that kind of stuff, and you, you, get, a bit of, you get a bit going, and then after a while, though, the, it gets harder to find your way through, and you're starting to read things about like dietary requirements, dietary laws, and like specifications about curtains and curtain rods and curtain rod holders, and that's like, it's like a couple of chapters on these curtains, and you're like, what is this? And then famine and death and judgment. And after a while, you're like, what am I actually reading here? How do I actually find my way through it? It can be be very confusing. Like occasionally we'll run across a character that we're familiar with from Sunday school. Like, oh, Joseph. Yeah, I know that guy. Oh, sweet. Technicolor coat. Yeah, okay, sweet. Okay, back on track. And then back here in the desert again, you're like, what is going on? And you don't know what, it's hard to find your way through. The Old Testament it can seem a bit like climbing Mount Everest. It can seem a bit like traversing across a treacherous mountain range. You know that other people have done it. You know it's possible, but every time you try, it, it's, it's hard to find your way through. And this is a big part of the motivation of why we've chosen to do this series called The Big Picture, where we are simply looking at the big picture of the Old Testament, walking it through, Uh, walking through the the overarching narrative of the Old Testament. There is one big picture, one overarching narrative of the Old Testament, and it threads its way through God's Word. It's all about Jesus, and the better we understand this story, the better we understand and we can find our ways through it, the the more we're going to grow in our knowledge of God, and the more our faith is going to grow. Now, for some of you, finding your way through the Old Testament, it's not a big deal. You've done it before. You've done it several times. You, each year you start it again and you look forward to the gems that you're going to find along that well-trodden path. And if that's you, that's great. I'm so glad that that's who you are, that's where you're at. I'm also aware of the fact that for others, you're not there yet, but you really want to be. You, you really want to find out more about this. You really want to feel a bit more confident whenever you open up God's Word. That if you were open up to, say, Zerubbabel, uh, sorry, if you would learn about Zerubbabel, open up to Ezra, you would kind of know what's going on there. You would kind of know what's actually happening in that particular story. 
Maybe you're a new Christian and you've never even tried to open the Old Testament because it just seems absolutely crazy. And if that's you, I, I want you to lean in for this series. I want you to, to pay attention. I want you to be, get a bit more engaged with this because I want to give you that confidence. I want you to, to help you have that confidence to be, able to be able to open up God's Word and feel like, yeah, I think I can work out what's going on here. I, or at least I know the tools that I can access. I know which part of the map to look at. I don't want you to feel embarrassed about that because there's actually nothing to be gained from being embarrassed. My, my hope is that this series is going to be helpful to you. So this series, as uh, Andrew said, it's going to go for about eight weeks, which just means we are not at all going to be able to, co- able to cover every single square inch or square foot or square mile, or I, and I don't know why I'm using the American measurement system. There. We're not going to be able to cover every single part of that. The aim is to stay close to the narrative turning points, the narrative contours, and see how the Old Testament really does uh, culminate around, point to Jesus Christ. The, the storyline of, of Scripture finds its ultimate fulfillment, its, its apex with the, the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It all points to him, it all comes down to him. And so we're doing this series now so that by the time we get to December, we're ready for Christmas. We're ready for the incarnation. We're ready for the birth of Jesus Christ. And so I'm looking forward to that, that when we get to Christmas, it's not just a, a blip on the radar that just kind of appears out of nowhere, but we've been preparing ourselves for it for the last the next two months. So I have three goals for this series. Firstly, to show you the story, how it all fits together around Jesus Christ. Secondly, to provide a bit of a map to help, to help you find your way through. And that's going to be some resources that we can maybe put together. And if um, you're looking for some resources, please come and talk to me about that. And thirdly, just to give you confidence, not just as you open God's word, but confidence in God's unbelievable, unending and unconditional love for you. You see, you might be skeptical about this, but God's love for mankind didn't begin with the birth of Jesus Christ. God's love for mankind began when he created mankind, and before that, actually. God's love for us is not something that is, 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 not something that is vacant in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, sometimes we have the, the wrong belief that the God of the Old Testament is this big old meanie, like this grumpy old man, and then we get to Jesus in the New Testament, and he's this really fun-loving guy, and he kind of sneakily goes and gets all these sinners off God's back, and he gets, lets us off the hook, and it's all good. That's just not true at all. We, we're going to see in the Old Testament that God's heart, the center of God's heart, is grace and mercy and kindness and love towards us. So, to begin with, before we get into our passage this morning, which we're going to be in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, before we get there, uh, I want to give us a really quick, like, and I mean really quick, fly-through of, uh, of the Old Testament. Now, I've got a slide here behind me, which gives you a bit of an outline of everything that's going on. Um, I did have these really rad transitions sorted out, but then I was not prepared enough to actually test it and make sure, water, sure it worked, and so it didn't work this morning. So that's there, but can you imagine as I'm talking through these things, that each one of these things is kind of appearing as I talk, and it's like, whoa, this makes more sense now. That's just like, imagine that. So just do that. We begin with Genesis, the story of creation, God creating the world. God creates a place God creates a people to live in that place, and God creates these people to live in that place under his blessing. 
But sin enters and God's people are evicted from God's place and they are separated from God's blessing. And the question is posed straight away, how can mankind come back into the presence of God? That's one of the questions that the Old Testament seems to be trying to answer. How can sinful mankind come back into the presence of God under his blessing again? Well, God has a plan. And generations later, God makes a covenant promise to Abraham that he would again establish his people to live in his place under his blessing and that his people would be a blessing to the rest of the world. But as we follow the story through after Abraham, the the promise doesn't come to fruition immediately. In fact, by the time we get to the end of Genesis, God's people, his family, they have grown, but they they are not in God's place. And they're not under God's blessing. In fact, they're under slavery. And so God, they're in Egypt, and a few, after a few centuries have passed, they've become not just a family, but an entire nation. This is where we get the story of Moses leading them out of Egypt into the wilderness towards the promised land of Canaan. The people head out in the desert for four decades, and they begin to learn how not to be slaves, but actually how to be God's people under his blessing again. This is where we get books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the book of Joshua, we read that the, the God's people finally enter God's place, enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. But as we continue reading on through Judges, it seems that the people still aren't really under God's blessing yet. Each person is not under God's rule, but each person was basically doing what was right in his own eyes. We do get glimmers of hope in this time, especially in the books like Ruth, that God is at work. And then we get to the book of Samuel and we start to see God's blessing take shape through the appointment of a king named David and the line of kings to come from him, beginning with his son Solomon. And this is where we get books like Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Songs. This is, this is, those kind of books are, are contemporary to that time. At this point, it seems like it's all coming together. Like if you've ever read through First and Second Samuel and, and into Kings and Chronicles, just kind of in that, there's these moments you're like, oh, I feel like this is it. I feel like it's like this high point. Like, yes, it's all coming together, but, it, but it's not long before sin again wreaks havoc upon God's people and appears to jeopardize God's plan. As we read through Kings and Chronicles, God's family goes through a tragic split. The family of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, they they split. And we have 10 tribes in the northern kingdom called Israel, two tribes in the southern kingdom called Judah. And the kings of each of these nations, they're a bit of a mixed bag. Pretty much in the northern kingdom of Israel, they're just generally all terrible people. In the southern kingdom, there's some good kings, there's some kind of almost good kings, there's some mixed bag, there's some bad kings. But they're basically are walking away from God. And so God sends prophets to, to bring them back, to, to bring them back into, under his favor. To the north he sends prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Hosea and Joel. To the south he sends prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Micah and Habakkuk. But the God's people, they don't listen. And after hundreds of years of disobeying God, worshipping idols, committing tragic injustice, and ultimately rejecting God, God raises up a foreign nation called the Assyrians to attack and exile the northern kingdom of Israel. And then sometime after that, he raises up the Babylonians to attack and, and exile the southern kingdom of Judah. The people of Judah, they are taken into captivity. All hope seems lost, but God is faithful. God has not yet forgotten his covenant. 
And through prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel, God gives them hope and, and eventually he brings them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. And this is where things remain for about 400 years, where a prophet does not speak. For 400 silent years, it's as if God's plan had basically stalled. But with God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And eventually a young woman is paid a visit by an angelic messenger who comes along and tells her that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. He's going to be the one who comes. Now that's a very brief, quick, maybe a little bit crude uh, view of the Old Testament. I've tried to say as chronological as I could because that just helps me understand it. It's painted with very broad brushstrokes, but this is maybe a bit of a map to help us find our way through. So now let's get into our text. We're going to be in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're going to go back to the beginning of all of this. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is full of, of richness, full of gold. There is so much we could say about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And for the purposes of today, we're just not going to get to cover it at all. Now, that's not to say that the other things that I'm not going to talk about are unimportant, because I don't believe that. In fact, I believe that the opposite, that these things are very, very important. They deserve our close attention. But for the purposes of finding our way through the Old Testament, we're going to be focusing specifically on how the big picture begins to unfold in these opening pages of God's Word. So the story, namely that God's people living in God's place under God's blessing, begins here. So firstly, God created a place. God is the creator. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the day and night. He created the skies and the waters and the land. God created the sun and the moon and the stars and the birds that fly in the air and the fish that swim in the ocean and the animals and the beasts and the things that creep on the earth to go and cover the land. God is the creator. He is the one who made all things. Now, did God create the heavens and the earth? Did God create uh, everything because he was bored? Or because he had nothing to do? No, he created the heavens and the earth. He created all these things to bring himself glory. This is why we read in Revelation 4.11 this morning that God is worthy to receive praise and honor because he created all things. God is the creator. He is the one who created all things. Now, when you read the creation story, you, you, particularly in Genesis 1, you see a, bit, a pattern begin to emerge. So, so God, firstly, in the first set of three days, days 1, 2, and 3, he creates habitats, and then in days 4, 5, and 6, he creates inhabitants to dwell in those places, in those habitats. So in Genesis 1, 2, we, we learn that the earth was, was, uh, was formless and, and void. And so it's almost as if the first three days solve the formless problem, where the first three days detail the forming of the earth. And then days 4, 5, and 6, the second set of three days, detail the filling of the earth. You can see that on the thing behind me. It's quite exquisite. It's quite beautiful. That these days, the days 4, 5, and 6, directly and symmetrically correspond to days 1, 2, and 3, where God creates habitats, and then he creates these places, and then, then God creates inhabitants or, or things to dwell in those places. And, and this tells us something wonderful about God. Firstly, it tells us about his creative power. Now, I don't know about you, um, you, you might be the kind of person who's like a bit of a free spirit, 
like you like just walking around without shoes on and when you walk in the ocean you don't roll your, sh- roll your pants up or your skirt up or anything. You're a bit of a free spirit, you've got incense burning, all that kind of stuff and you just love the creation story because it's so much about God's creative power. Or maybe you're into Excel spreadsheets and that's just, that's just your jam. That's just like, oh, that's just, uh, life is good when it's ordered and structured. Well, the creation story has everything for everybody. Because we see God's unbelievable creative power come, it's, it's bubbling forth, it's incredible. By his words, he is creating. And yet it's not chaotic, it's beautiful. And it's, he actually brings structure and order out of the chaos. It's exquisite, it's beautiful. And so whether you are more of a free spirit kind of person or whether you just want people to see your spreadsheets, it's just like there's something here for everyone. I'm more of a spreadsheet guy, so I love this, I love this. And so it not only tells us about the beauty of God and bringing order to chaos, but it also prepares us. It prepares us to, to read God's word and read in God's word that God is a God that desires to dwell in his creation. He desires to be with his people in creation. From the, the, from the garden which we're reading about to the tabernacle and the temple which is God's dwelling place when he's with Israel in the desert and in the, in the promised land. To, to Jesus' actual arrival where God says that, the, that, that Jesus came, uh, John writes that Jesus actually came and tabernacled amongst us, right all the way to Revelation where, we, where the new heavens and the new earth, where the heavens come down and it's the new heavens and the new earth and we are able to, to dwell with God and see God face to face. God is a God who wants to dwell with his people. God is a God who wants to dwell with us. And let's just let that sink in for a moment. He's not a cold and distant God. He doesn't create and then stand back and hope for the best. He, he doesn't create and go, oh, that's pretty nice, that's pretty great, but I don't really want to be there with those people. He is a God who creates and then enters his creation. He wants to dwell with his people. So he created a place, he created a people to live in that place. God desires to dwell with the people that he created. As you read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, mankind is regarded as the crown jewel of creation. This is why we read in Psalm 8 this morning that he is made just a little lower than the angels. Mankind is different. He is made in the image of God. And this is said of no other created thing. God creates all these things, but mankind is created in the image of God. Which means when he creates these image bearers, people that bear his image... This is his way of bringing glory to himself. So we have a really practical example of what this means or what's behind this in this hall, which if you look up to my left, there's a picture of Queen Elizabeth, an image of Queen Elizabeth. And regardless of how you feel about Queen Elizabeth or the monarchy or anything like that, that image is there to kind of give us a bit of a hint that she is the sovereign leader over our land as well as a bunch of other lands. And, And in community halls like this, you often see pictures of the Queen because... That's a way of saying we should be bringing, or not should be, but there's a measure of honor and glory being given to her because her image is here in this hall. In the same way, when God created image bearers, it was to bring him glory. People who would reflect his glory up to him, he would reflect it to the rest of the world. That when we see one another, we would see image bearers, people who bear the image of God, giving him glory. Now, our culture has gone to great lengths to try and prove that mankind is descended from apes, is no different to any other living species. To that we say, no, mankind is unique amongst creation. 
He is the pinnacle of the created order. Every single person has immense value and dignity and worth by virtue of being created in the image of God. So God created the people to live in this place under his blessing. Now there are many things we can say about this, but one of the things that you notice when we, when we read that human beings are made in God's image is that God firstly blesses them and then he commands them. So firstly, he commands them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, which is another way of him filling the entire earth with image bearers, with his glory. And he also commanded mankind to rule over creation, to have dominion over the fish of the sea, to rule over created things, to rule over the birds of the air and the animals that creep on the earth. In the same way that God is the sovereign king and rules over all of creation, mankind is made in God's image uh, to rule over the rest of creation, kind of like representatives of the king. So what does that mean to rule? Like it says to rule over the fish of the sea. Like, is that like Aquaman or something? That, like we can speak to the animals and actually say, you know, I watched Dr. Doolittle the other week with my kids. I don't recommend it. It's a pretty terrible movie. I didn't understand much of what Robert Downey Jr. said. He was talking this and mumbling the whole time. But like, is that what God means by this? Like we actually have, like we rule over, that we actually have dominion over these things? When it talks about us ruling, very emphatically actually, in these opening chapters of the Bible, over created things, it means that on the one hand, we are called to cultivate it, protect it, tend it, work it, nurture it. Not use it for our own personal gains, but, but, actually, but, to, but to work it and actually protect it. On the other hand, it also, to rule over created things, means very importantly, not to be ruled by created things. How could then fish of the sea rule over mankind? That's what it kind of means. Like I can imagine if I was you know, suddenly put into a polar bear enclosure that those polar bears would be the ones in charge. So does that kind of like, is that, is that what we're talking about here? Well, not exactly. To, to understand uh, this question, to answer the question, we need to acknowledge the created order of things. Visualize for a moment the three tiers of the created order. God ruling over creation, including mankind. God ruling over all things. And then mankind ruling over the rest of the creation, given rule over that, but not ruling over God, and then the rest of the creation sitting underneath mankind's dominion. This means there is nothing separating God and mankind. Humanity, as God's vice regents, have direct access to the Creator. There is nothing that separates mankind from God, not even clothing, because there is no need for that, to hide any aspect of who they are. God created mankind to be in a very special relationship with him, different to all the other creatures. He designed us, he created us to, to look to him, to have him as our all-sufficiency. God is everything that mankind needs, and mankind can worship him and look to him for their wisdom and for their complete fulfillment and satisfaction. And this is exemplified really in, in chapter 2, verse 16, where it says that God put Adam into the garden and then he says, Adam, you are free to eat from any tree from that garden. God generously gave Adam all that he could possibly need, but that freedom came with a prohibition. You must not eat from the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. To take the fruit from this tree and eat of it would be an act of defiance before God. Because it would be denying his created order. It would be to reject what God had generously given them. To take the fruit was to seek wisdom and satisfaction from something outside of God. To take the fruit would have been an act of moral autonomy to say, I know what's right for me. God has no right to tell me what to do. I know what's best. I should be in the place of God. Now, you might not think that that's what's going through your mind when you sin, but dissect any sin, and that's what you'll find at the bottom of it all. And so the picture that we get from the first two chapters of of the Bible is this beautiful place where God has put his people to live under his blessing. And so long as mankind obeyed God, he would remain under God's blessing. But this was not to last. And we flick over to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of God's people. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and the serpent tempts Eve. Now we've got to notice in this temptation, amongst other important things, that the goal of Satan here was to disrupt and to destroy the order of creation. Satan saw the beauty and the symmetry and the perfection that God created and he wanted to tear it down. So what did he do? He tempted mankind. He tempted mankind, manipulating them to want to be in the place of God. He says in verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. Then... In one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible, we read in Genesis 3, 6, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So just to dissect that a bit, we have Eve looking at a creative thing the fruit, something that she was meant to rule over, and she's seeking it. She's desiring it. She's feeling like that she needs that thing to be complete. What she should have been seeking from God, she starts seeking from a created thing. Instead of ruling over this created thing, she becomes ruled by it. She comes under the belief that she needed nothing else to be happy except for this fruit. And this is what it looks like to be ruled by created things. She became ruled by the fruit, believing that if I have that, then I'll have everything that God has been withholding from me. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then we might wonder why a piece of fruit is just so offensive to God. And we've got to understand that it's about so much more than just the fruit. It's about this act of defiance. That sin is taking a position against God and saying, you have no right to tell me what to do. I am the one in charge. I am the one who should be in charge. I am the one who is God. I will decide what is good for me. I will decide what I will take and I will decide what I won't take. And I reckon you could put just about every sin that we ever commit into those terms. I should be in the place of God. This is what the Bible calls idolatry, and for this particular story, it was the fruit, but it's anything for us, right? 
It could be a career that we go, I need a career to be happy. I need a good, high-paying career where I'm fully satisfied in it, where everything's just absolutely perfect and my boss is great and I've got lots of holiday leave and everything's really, really wonderful and I need that to be happy and I can't be happy until I get that thing. And that might be a spouse, it might be kids, it might be the perfect body that you think, I'll be happy once I look like the pictures in the magazines. It might be money that you go, I'm just unsatisfied, life is not good, I'm, I've got nothing, God is bad to me, unless I, he gives me exactly what I really, really want, which is money and riches, and that could be fame, it could be power, it could be influence, it could be any number of things. We look at these things which were, which were created things, they're not the creator, they are created things, we go, I need that to be happy. The Bible calls this, idolatry, looking to something that isn't God and seeking something from it that only God can give, and worshipping that thing instead of worshipping God, sacrificing whatever it takes to have it. And this is how sin is treated throughout Scripture. Over and over again, and we're going to see this uh, play itself out as we walk through the Old Testament. And over and over again, God's people look to creative things. They, they make these idols, they, they, they things that they create themselves. And they worship them and they bow down to them like the golden calf and any other myriad of things we can find in the Old Testament. Paul sums this up very succinctly in Romans 1, verses 22 to 23. Claiming to be wise, they, which is all of mankind, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is how the creation story sets the tone and the trajectory for the rest of Scripture. Sin entered the world, fractured creation, and set up a pattern for mankind that would constantly draw mankind away from God instead of worshipping God, worshipping, serving, and created things, being ruled by them instead of ruling over them. Sin ruins everything. That's what we're learning in Genesis 3. But... God has a much bigger plan, a wonderful plan, something far more wonderful than the serpent could ever contrive. And this is where we come across God's immediate promise of victory. In Genesis 3.15, we see the beginnings of God's plan to save mankind come to place. And this plan that God would have would become the way that he would receive the most wonderful glory. So speaking this curse to the snake, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, other than what some people might regard as a really great day, way to deal with snakes, uh, Genesis 3.15 provides for us something incredibly wonderful. It's come to be known as the Proto-Euangelion, the first message of the gospel in the Bible. And what God says here is absolutely wonderful. He's promising that there would come a day, one day, where a man would come from the offspring of Eve, and though he would be struck, though he would uh, be, uh, receive a deadly, a deadly blow from, though he would be struck by Satan, he would deal a deadly blow to Satan in, in return. And one of the questions that the Old Testament seems to be asking a lot of the time is, who is this one who is to come? And over and over again, we come across these characters in the Old Testament and we can ask, is this the one who is to come? Maybe Joseph, he seems like a good character. Maybe it was Abraham? Is it Joshua? Is it Samuel? Is it David? Like who, is it any of these guys? And over and over and over again, the Old Testament answers that question. No, it's not these guys. 
over and over again until we come to Jesus. Jesus is the one who came, and though he himself would be struck on the cross, absorbing the punishment for mankind's sin, he would have the victory over sin and death by rising again on the third day. And that's where God crushes the head of the snake. Genesis 3.15 is telling us that God was going to get the ultimate victory. Yes, it was going to come at the ultimate cost for God, but he was going to win. God promises victory over Satan and sin and death, and Genesis 3.15 becomes the spark which ignites the inferno of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And as we read through the Old Testament, we'll see these flames pop up over and over and over again. Sometimes they're just a little flicker. Sometimes it's a big blazing fire. But over and over again, we see these foreshadowings, these hints that the one is to come, the one, the, the snake crusher, the snake killer, he's going to come and he's going to reverse what sin has done. And he's going to save mankind. He's going to bring God's people back under God's blessing. One of the things here that makes Genesis 3.15 just so sweet I've actually only seen this in the last couple of weeks. The thing that makes this just wonderfully sweet is God's timing. Did you know that God makes this promise of victory in Genesis 3.15 before he speaks to Adam and Eve? A number of years ago, I read a true and tragic story of a young man who had just received his driver's license and, and in his excitement... He hopped into his parents' car in the driveway. What he didn't know is that his young sister, his very, very small sister, was playing behind the car. And the tragedy occurred and she lost her life. In unimaginable despair and panic, the son ran off with his head in his hands, experiencing something that most of us never will. The father, who had seen it happen, raced out. And seeing his son running away, he called out to his son, Son, no matter what, I love you. You see, that father sensed rightly that in that moment, his son would have felt particularly, completely unlovable. So the first thing that he did was to remind his son of his unconditional love for him. And here in the garden, Adam and Eve would have felt completely unlovable, and yet they experienced the depth of the heart of their father. You see, this was not a mechanical moment. Sometimes we can read through Genesis 3 and go, that's a bit of a shame. We can read through it coldly, and we can read through it and just like this dialogue happening, whatever, and we just kind of move on with it. But actually... This is a tragic scenario. God the Father who created his children to live with him under his blessing was grieved by the wreck they had made of their own lives. He had seen that they were trying to hide their shame. They had sewn together uh, vines and leaves to hide their shame. They were hiding from God. They were running from him and it grieved him. And so he made sure the first words out of his mouth were, I'm going to fix this. Speaking to the serpent, he says, you've tried to mess this up, but I am going to fix this. And when it is finished, and I've chosen those words importantly, when it is finished, it will be more wonderful than you can ever imagine. This is the promise of Genesis 3.15. Do you feel unlovable? 
Do you feel that there is just no way that God could love you? Like you, you might never articulate it out loud like this. You might be happy to come to church and sing a song about God's love for us and you, you kind of go along with it. But deep down when you read God's word, you read John 3.16, God so loved the world, you read that and you go, God so loved the world, yes, but there's a little footnote there and it actually doesn't mean me. And maybe if there was anybody in, in all of creation, in all of history, who was ever not loved by God, it's probably me. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that God is hesitating before he loves you? If that's you, you need to hear that at the very center of God's heart is an eagerness to lavish his insurmountable love and generous grace upon you. You see, what's most natural and reflexive to God is his infinite loving kindness for you and I. That is what is most natural, that is what is most reflexive for him. It's the knee-jerk reaction. In the same way that you and I, we get the knee-jerk reaction as soon as someone hits us in the right place. When that happens, our knee, our leg kicks up. God's reflexive action towards our sin is to come to us with his grace and his love. Because Jesus Christ has dealt with it already. I'm not a perfect father. And I know that admitting that isn't a, that's not virtue signaling. It's just I'm just not a perfect father. And here's a scenario that often plays out in our household and in our lives. And I'm so glad that God is not like me when it comes to being a father. <clears throat> Child does something that upsets dad. Dad overreacts and yells and shouts and screams. Uh, dad then might give a bit of a stern talking to to the child. And then we have a cooling off period where I go and I feel terrible about what I just said and did, and the kid goes and plays Lego. And then we come back, and Dad says, I'm so sorry I spoke to you like that. And the kid says, oh, I guess I'm sorry too. I go, oh my goodness. And this happens to us all the time. This happened twice yesterday. I was rehearsing my sermon, and I stopped midway to go and rinse one of my children. No, I didn't rinse, I just, just was very angry. In fact, we were hanging out with Joel and Amanda yesterday, and they saw one of my outbursts. I had to go back and say, I'm so sorry for what I did. And then I went to them, like, hey, guys, just giving you a bit of an explanation. This is what happened, and oh, I'm just trying to justify myself. Hey, I'm just so glad that God is not like me. I'm so glad that when I screw up, God doesn't go, oh, you big idiot. Oh, I'm so sorry. I guess I should forgive you. It's in the contract. Oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. No, God, when I sin, God's grace is there. It's immediate. God's love, his eternal love, it's, in, it's, in, it's immediate there for me. It's as sure as toast always falling butted side down. That's how guaranteed God's love is for us. And this lightens our load, doesn't it? Can we just pause and, for a moment and reflect upon these wonderful facts? That Adam and Eve were in the garden seeing God face to face. And even when they rebelled against God and tried to unseat him as the king of the universe, his first reaction was to curse the, curse the snake and to announce his plan for victory, a plan that would cost him everything. And then he goes about detailing the, the, the consequences for their sin, but immediately it's, he curses the snake. And he goes about telling about his victory that he's going to achieve. It's going to cost him his life. That's what God does. 
So have you been carrying around sin and shame because you think that God is slow and hesitant to forgive you? If that's you, I've got some good news. You're wrong. And that's one of those things that you should be very, very glad that you're wrong about. He has dealt with your sin and it cost him everything and he did it because of his great love for you. And this is how much God loves you that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't actually perish, but will have eternal life. They'll get to actually know God. The person who believes in the message of the gospel will experience God's mercy as they are spared from the wrath of God upon their sin, and they will experience God's grace towards them as he rewards them with something that Jesus Christ achieved. The story of the Bible is a story, is the story of a gracious God who created a people to live with him under his blessing. And even though his people rebelled and they were snatched away from him, he would get them back, even if it was going to cost him everything. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 